Friends, hear our New Testament reading uh, from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 9, beginning at verse 28. Listen now for what the Spirit is saying to the church today. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. And then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and in those days told no one of the things they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Reading this familiar text this week, um, I was struck, I think, by a sentence that also struck Pastor David. Um, I hadn't really noticed before. When Luke tells this story, he says that Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but they stayed awake long enough to witness God's glory. It's not the typical report given the disciples. Usually they do fall asleep. They do doze off. They do miss something that they ought to have seen, heard, comprehended. But not here, not in this story. It seems that they were aware that whatever was about to happen, it was not to be missed, even if they were exhausted. And that seems a logical conclusion to make when you're on the top of a mountain with the Son of God. Maybe it is not the best time for a nap. Do you remember the last time you fought off sleep? And not because you were behind the wheel at night or up at 2 a.m. feeding a baby or at church and the preacher was halfway through the sermon, but because you really didn't want to miss something. I think of my friends who used to attend the opening day midnight showings of Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. They waited with building anticipation throughout the week, so excited to see some of their favorite characters and stories come alive on screen. And then despite weighted eyelids and a diminishing capacity to absorb or compute any information, they sat in dark theaters, sucking down their caffeinated beverages of choice and staring intently at the screen. It was worth it, they assured me. And I think of drives through northern Michigan or the Tennessee Hill Country when I could have easily dozed off in the passenger seat but wouldn't allow my eyes to shut. 
I remember a flight from LA to San Francisco when I was in college. My friend and I had left the apartment of her brother at 4 a.m. We had tried to sleep on his couch for a couple of nights with our, our jackets bunched up as pillows underneath our heads. So by the time the plane to our next spring break destination was up in the air, we were exhausted, fighting hard to make it and ready to sink into our seats for uh, a blessed, drooling-on-the-pillow kind of sleep. But the sun was rising, orange and luminous, casting rays of pink, and through my window seat, the coast of the Pacific Ocean was just to the left. And so I nodded in and out and in and out of sleep for the whole flight because, wow, it was stunning. Can you remember the last time you fought to stay awake because you didn't want to miss something? Peter and James and John must have sensed something was about to happen on that mountain, and they sensed rightly. Today we come to the end of the Epiphany season, where we remember those events in which the identity and mission of Jesus were revealed. In some ways, it seems strange that the transfiguration of Jesus would have been necessary at all, considering all of the hints that the disciples were given along the way, the story of his birth, the voice coming down at his baptism, his healings and teachings, and, and what must have been the intense energy that just surrounded him. Alas, we are human, and we tend to miss a lot of revelatory moments. So all of the stops are pulled out here on the side of this mountain. Jesus, the man that they ate and laughed and worked and wept with, stood there, changed, his clothes dazzling with light and his face radiant, talking with two long-deceased but revered prophets of old. Clearly, he was more than Jesus from Nazareth. These stories are, of course, told in hindsight by a community of faith that wrote post-resurrection as they sought to remember, connect, and assign meaning to their experiences. When did we know, they asked. This particular experience, like many of them, wasn't primarily an informative one, imparting information about this fellow's special relationship to the Almighty. It was primarily a relational one. It was an experience of being bathed, filled, blinded, even exposed by God's piercing light. If it's hard for your modern mind to comprehend this scene, think of the last time you felt bathed filled, blinded, even exposed by something bigger than you, or imagine what it might feel like. This was the final revelation before the trek to Jerusalem and all that waited Jesus there. Is it any wonder 
that Peter and company wanted to stay just a little bit longer. Jesus, why don't I make you some dwellings, some booths, so that we can camp out here for a while? This is good. We're told that his statement was dismissed, but Peter's longing is understandable. Who of us hasn't wanted to bask in a moment of resonance, of fullness, of communion with God or with one another when it breaks through the monotony of our days and holds us there? When I was about 12 years old, my parents and I made a trip to the Grand Canyon. It was grand and amazing and terrifying and beautiful and all of that. But I imagine, like many who make that trip, an equally gratifying treat was the short visit that we made to Sedona, Arizona, on the way there. With her stunning backdrop of red sandstone formations that glow in the sun or moonlight, Sedona is truly something to behold. And really and truly, you have the feeling that you are in the midst of some sort of alternative reality. When I returned home, I continued to hear stories from others who had experienced holy moments in Sedona. So much so that these days I expect those stories and I'm no longer surprised. Delighted, but not surprised. On our own visit... My parents and I made the long trek up the pedestrian walkway of the famous Cathedral Rock, moving laboriously because my mother had metastatic cancer and I had a fever and strep throat. I had not managed to stay awake for most of that drive leading to Sedona, though mercifully my mother had. This trip was on her bucket list, and it was a list that had taken on a lot more importance in the last couple of years. It was physically demanding, but once we were all at the top, it was worth it. My 12-year-old self enjoyed it, but I sensed that for my parents it was more than enjoyment. They had been transported elsewhere as they gazed out. So in my adolescent awkwardness and discomfort with adult emotion, I left them and I wandered around in the gift shop. When I found them again, they were at the altar in the chapel and they were praying together. I had never seen them do that. Later I learned that when they had approached the table, the Bible was open to her very favorite book and chapter. Needless to say, we lingered there for a while, soaking it in. Perhaps we give Peter too hard a time for wanting to stay on that mountain. Surely he wasn't suggesting that they stay there forever. Perhaps he just wanted to preserve the moment, the way that ancient peoples built altars where they'd experienced something profound, or the way some of us buy souvenirs in the gift shops of places that we want to remember back when we're in the real world. Nevertheless, God was provoked by Jesus's, sorry, by Peter's suggestion. 
Peter's commentary is God's cue to come close, terrifyingly close in a cloud. God's voice thunders, or does it whisper? So much so that they had to travel farther into the cloud to hear it. This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. Was God telling them to listen to what Jesus had said just days before the trek up that mountain? The very last sermon that he gave before that trip was all about taking up one's cross and following him. It was a call to radical discipleship, a call not just to point to him, but to accompany him as he did his sacrificial work with and for our world. When God said, listen to my son, perhaps that last teaching was what God had in mind. That would make sense. Peter's desire to make some dwellings and stay on that mountain, understandable though it was, betrayed his resistance to the messy work of discipleship. And to that resistance, God says, no, <laughs> you, really, you really do have to go back down the mountain to the life that awaits you there. This holy moment is not an end in itself. Worship is not an end in itself. The life that awaits you there is captured in the text that directly follows this mountaintop scene, where the disciples who were left behind are trying and failing to heal a child in the presence of his desperate and pleading father. In the lectionary, these verses are put in parentheses as if they are optional. No small number of scholars has pointed out that by making these verses optional, we, the contemporary church, are falling into the same trap as the disciples on that mountain, basking in our mountaintop experiences of the divine or perhaps longing for them, as those disciples who were left at the foot of the mountain probably were. In the valley below, another son, a father's only child, is suffering from violent seizures. It convulses him until he foams at the mouth. It mauls him, and it will scarcely leave him, the father explains, the sentence forming only because parents can do amazing things when their children are suffering. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not, the father continued. In the valley below, this is what Jesus is greeted by when he descends the mountain with the three a father in despair, and nine disciples that are wringing their hands. And Jesus is furious. How much longer must I be with you and bear with you, he exclaims. It's a side of Jesus that can be painful to see. Juxtaposed as this scene is, with the glorious transfiguration of the Lord, the conclusion is rather clear. 
The disciples failed to recognize that the transfiguration was about them, too. They, too, were being called to change and to be agents of change. And Jesus is just done with the pleasantries. Time is running out. Today, as we witness what the head of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church calls a fratricidal war between siblings baptized in the same font. I can't help but remember that for Orthodox Christians, the transfiguration of the Lord is one of the greatest feast days. As central to the gospel narrative as the birth and resurrection stories. It is the scripture, the story that forms the basis for much of their theology. In the transfiguration of Jesus, we see the potential of human nature, that we humans are not totally depraved, but can be restored to our original glory, made as we are in God's image. In the transfiguration of Jesus, salvation is inaugurated. We are saved by sharing in the transfiguration of him, getting caught up in the transformation of the whole world. In the transfiguration of Jesus, the earth which is fallen, but essentially good, is returned to its original goodness, transfigured, transformed by the grace and the power of God. So friends, with so many in the valley below today, what on earth do we do? I don't know about you, but I don't want to be caught by Jesus wringing my hands helplessly, unable or unwilling to participate in the healing of the world in the healing of the pain that is right in front of us. So I wonder today what that participation looks like. Maybe it is praying without ceasing for restraint, for creative solutions, for peace, for Russians who support a war of aggression to be orthodox first, claimed and moved by their God before their nation. And for Russians bravely taking to the streets to be guarded, to be guided, to be strengthened by the power of love. Maybe it's researching how to effectively bring aid to the children, to the women and the men of Ukraine, to Ukrainians who have stayed and Ukrainians who have fled. Maybe it's committing to a deeper read of what has happened in, the part, in that part of the world since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Maybe it's tending to the suffering of neighbors that are a little closer to us, tending to a transgression of justice that's not halfway around the world, but connected, as all injustice is, by the invisible threads of human vanity and pain and fear. The mountaintop experiences are only as salvific as what we do in our next trek through the valley. 
The transfiguration of Jesus was never an end in itself, but rather the beginning of our own transfigured existence. So today, with Ukrainians who fear for their lives, and with Russians who rally and Russians who reel, with a world that watches and waits and weeps, may we rest in the steadfast hope that is the transfiguration of all that suggests we don't bear the image of God into all that confirms we actually do. And may we work in the steadfast strength for the things that make for peace. May we listen to him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Mother of us all. Amen.